Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. Joining us on this episode is Carol Roth, who's a well-known advocate for entrepreneurship and small businesses. She's the creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System, a billion-dollar dealmaker, best-selling author, and TV host. She's also the author of the best-selling book, The Entrepreneur Equation. Carol, thank you so much for joining us. It is so fantastic to be here with both of you. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, we're excited to talk with you and wonder if you could tell us more about your background, how you got to where you are today. Oh, goodness. Well, that's a, that's a crazy sort of situation. I, I always go back and say that um, I had sort of no chance to be normal because I was born to a mom who was Martha Stewart crossed with Cher <laughs> and a dad that was half mobster, half Jewish grandmother. So I'm the normal one in the family, but there wasn't sort of a, a lot of normalcy <laughs> going on. <laughs> um, neither of my parents graduated from college, so I ended up being the first person in my family to go to school and uh, got myself into Wharton undergrad, the top business undergraduate program in the country, and went to my union electrician father and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to the school. And he was like, I have no idea how you're paying for it. And I walked him through the whole thing. Um, went to school, got my $40,000 in college debt, which today sounds like not a lot, but back in 1995 was about the equivalent of $120,000 today. Sure. And uh, decided I had to pay that off quickly because that is one of the lessons. And so I became um, an investment banker. I kind of always felt like there were two options, either a consultant for the people who like to deep dive into something and investment banking for those who had ADD. And since I clearly had ADD and I could work on 12 deals at one time. That was going to be my route. But I never really wanted to be the world's best investment banker. You kind of did that for the money and the financial stability and to, to create that foundation and get a lot of great experience. And so over the years, just kept trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, never really figured it out, but became a collector of experiences. And so, you know, from that time, from, you know, now being a recovering investment banker, because it's sort of a 12 step program that you don't really get out of, <laughs> uh, you know, as you mentioned, have done the New York Times bestselling book. I've been a reality TV show judge for our Mark Burnett reality show that was on TBS. I've hosted radio. I've been a TV contributor. I've been a public company director, consultant to the biggest uh, companies in the world, you know, speaker who's been on stages around the world, um, and all of these just very cool experiences. And I have my own action figure and uh, you know, still, still plugging away as an entrepreneur. So many people I find in my generation, I'm a millennial, and all of my friends, yeah, not even just some, all of my friends seem to think they're entrepreneurs, even though not everybody is a successful entrepreneur. What qualities make for a good one? So I think that some people are born entrepreneurial and some people aren't. And I always use the Santa and elf analogy. So, you know, Santa Claus kind of organizes everything. He's out front. Even if the elves get lazy, you know, it's all on him at the end of the day. If the presents don't get delivered and, you know, he's going to do 
whatever it takes, shake, you know, <laughs> shake hands, kiss babies, literally <laughs> put them in his lap, all those kinds of things. Where the elves, you know, they're really good at what they do, but they need the direction for Santa. You know, Santa's not there, you know, they're not getting everything together for Christmas. And I think that people tend to fall in one of those categories sort of naturally. And so as you could probably guess, the entrepreneurs are the Santas <laughs> the ones that, that will do anything and pick up the ball and run with it and you know take the blame and sort of orchestrate everything where the elves are very execution oriented. They need that guidance from somebody. So I think that sort of sets the foundation. And then after you get past that, for each opportunity, you not only need to be that right person, but you need to be pursuing the right opportunity for you at the right time in order to be successful. So a lot of things have to sort of align from you to move from, I am an entrepreneur, as you said, um, to I am a successful entrepreneur and I have something that's an actual business and is not just me, you know, out driving my Uber or my Lyft. So what are some of the questions you should ask yourself if you want to become a successful <laughs> entrepreneur? I think the first question you should ask yourself is, are you, are you Santa or are you an elf? And if you're an elf, just be an elf, go be entrepreneurial inside <laughs> somebody else's company. I think you have to ask yourself if the risk justifies the reward. I think that's one of the, the biggest issues um, for entrepreneurs is that they go and they pursue these these opportunities where they're taking on a lot of personal risk in terms of their time commitment, sometimes in terms of their financial commitment, and the output of what they're trying to achieve doesn't justify the risk that they're taking on. And we find when you look at the statistics that a lot of people end up creating these job-oriented businesses where they're working more hours for the same or less pay with more stress than if they would have just had a job. So really analyzing the opportunities and, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and we all like to sleep and, you know, shower and watch TV and do other, you know, naughty things and whatnot. So <laughs> there's only so much time that you can actually devote to work. Right. And sometimes it's just as easy or just as difficult to pursue something that's really big than it is something that's smaller. And I, I just don't think enough people are really pushing the envelope on their ideas. And then in that same context, you know, once you get through that person and opportunity, is it the right time? You know, do you have experience? Do you have access to capital? Do you have people who are dependent upon you? Um, I have a, a situation with an older entrepreneur that I know now who you know, just had a baby and now wants to spend time with, with his baby. And, and that's just not a good time to be devoting all of your time to your business because you have to make those choices. And you know, only you can determine what is success for you. But if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to prioritize the business and you can only make one thing your number one priority. So let's say that you have a great idea and you don't have a baby, so you have time to focus on this idea. How do you go from it being just a thought to coming to life? So first of all, idea like the great idea. That's like the the red flag of death. <laughs> oh, everybody has a everybody great idea. does right. Um, and I will tell you, I would rather invest in a great person with a terrible idea who can execute than somebody who you know isn't such a great execution person, um, but you know thinks that they've got a, a fantastic idea. We, we we've seen it over and over again. 
understand that that's not necessarily the recipe. But if you do think that you have some sort of problem that you're going to solve and you're the right person to solve it, the very first thing that you need to do is to create a real business plan. And I I know it's not in vogue where you guys are out in San Francisco in the Valley and everybody likes to do these napkin things, but you need to have some sort of roadmap of where you're going and you have to have some running of numbers, which, you know, we will all discount by probably (laughs) a factor of 20% of what they actually are in reality, but you have to, to go through the exercise of, okay, What are the milestones? What are the things that I'm going to need to knock down in order to make this happen? And then be really realistic about it. And when you think you're really realistic about the time and the capital, then you need to triple all of that because (laughs) entrepreneurs are optimistic by definition, right? They wouldn't go into the businesses if they weren't optimistic. And I've never once seen an entrepreneur project anything correctly in terms of time or money. Yeah, talk so, to us about that rule of three. Yeah, so so it's everything um, is three times more expensive than it should be, is three times as difficult and three times as long as it should be to take to get done. And so I just say, go ahead and at a minimum, triple everything, because even if you are a seasoned entrepreneur, um, I'm you know in a, a new entrepreneurial venture myself, I've been down this road many times before, and I knew whatever I projected that it was going to take three times as long oh my gosh. and be three <laughs> times the headache, because that's just how things happen. I mean, think about Oprah Winfrey, you know, Oprah Winfrey was on top of the world, you had every network, every connection that you could possibly think of, you know, billions of dollars. And when she left to start her own network, literally and figuratively, the own network, yeah. <laughs> it actually took her like three years for it to get going. And people were like, oh, this is going to be a failure and whatnot. But it does take that long to get that foundation. So if it's going to take Oprah with every resource and every connection in the world, three years for something to happen, you know, give your, cut yourself some slack and be realistic that it's going to take you some time as well. So give us a thumbnail sketch of what this business plan that you talk about is all, is all about. So I think there are a, a number of things that you want to go through. Um, in terms of the idea, you really want to have a sense of what problem you're solving and what, how you're solving it in a, a different way than people might currently be attacking it on the, on the market. So I think that's, that's really important because a lot of people don't really know. They don't really know exactly what it is that they're solving and why that's a pain point. And then from there, you have to have a, a sense of who your customer is because your customer can't be everybody on the planet. You don't have the resources to target everybody. And so to be successful, you need to be able to to walk through that. And then you need to, to have a sense of who the team is. You know, do you have the people who are in place to make it happen? And if not, you know, what are those holes that you need to fill and what do those competencies look like? And hopefully competencies that are complementary to you, because if everybody has the same strengths, that's not going to work out so well. You need to have that sort of complementary um, framework in mind. And then you want to have a sense of, of those milestones. You know, What are the things that you need to do and you need to knock down one right after another in order to get to your desired outcome 
And then, of course, you want to have the financials to back that up. So how much is it going to cost you to achieve those milestones? And you know, what are the assumptions that you're making to get there? Because a lot of times people just project pretty numbers uh, on a page, but obviously any assumption that you make really drives that financial model. So how did you figure that out? What kind of you know, uh, numbers are you looking at it for things like cost of customer acquisition, um, you know, costs for, uh, you know, your own team, you know, all development costs, R&D, all those kinds of things, the assumptions that you make can really impact the model and, and figure out if it's financially viable. And then, you know, what's your exit? If you're going to, if you're going to take that money and you're going to build something of value, like who's going to buy this? How are you, how are the investors going to return their money? And, you know, at the end of the day, if you go out and you, you use this business plan for more than just yourself to identify if this is a good opportunity, but if you use it to raise capital, at the end of the day, the investors only really care about how they're making money. So that has to be on your mind as well. If the business isn't succeeding, if you've done all this and it seems like the business is a failure, at what point do you need to throw in the towel? <laughs> so it's a very difficult question to answer because so many people say that they've done everything when they've really done three things and gotten frustrated yep. at the rejection. So I think if you've come to terms somewhere along the, the way that you, you just don't have the, the stomach and the heart for this, then just cut bait and get out immediately. Like if you're not cut out to do it and you can't pursue something every day with that vigor to get it done immediately and have the patience and the stomach for when it takes much longer, be able to handle the rejection, then just, just say, you know what, I tried this. It's not a fit, and we're just going to not throw good money after bad, and we're going to cut our losses. But if it's if it's a you know a real opportunity, and you're just running up against the wall, you really need to think about why is it not working? Like, what assumption did we make that isn't working? And is there an opportunity for us to pivot and try something else? And I think that if you look at a lot of really successful businesses, they end up looking different than what we all anticipated, because no matter how good we all are at strategy and planning, the reality is that there's context that we don't know. And so really good entrepreneurs are good at making those pivots and, you know, continuing to transform their model. And I think Airbnb is a great example of that. You know, when they founded that business, the idea was to couch surf on people's house, you know, in people's houses while they were there. So that's you would you would basically rent out somebody's couch or spare bedroom, and when that didn't really work out, you know they were just about out of money when one of their investors said, "You know, I've been trying to get you guys to really think about the you know putting your whole place you know to, out for rent model, and you keep pushing back, and you know you're kind of running out of options. Will you just consider it?" And that's when they you know changed to that model and and joined Y Combinator and got some additional resources and help, but. Obviously, they could have just walked away and said, you know, it didn't work, yeah. but they, they had made a bad assumption and they tried something different. And, you know, if you've got the, the heart and you really believe in conceptually what you're doing, you have to keep pivoting. And, uh, you know, if it ne- doesn't work, then if you're a real entrepreneur, you probably go try something again. <laughs> Carol, you say that nothing can derail your business quite like negative press or reviews. Explain more about that and and what a business can do if it gets negative press or a negative review. 
Yeah, so it's interesting. We have a, a community of contributors, of small business owners, who we, we go out and we pull to get their expertise. So I'm going to pull from not just my knowledge base, but from all of these wonderful uh, people who are in my community. But, you know, negative press, it's like it's the vocal minority. Everybody thinks something is great, and then you get one negative review, and then all of a sudden everyone's focused on the one piece of, of negativity. And it's an opportunity for a business to really show who they are, not just by collecting all the great feedback, but showing how you respond to something that isn't working. Because the reality is we all make mistakes. And even though businesses aren't human, the people behind them are human. And so if you're somebody who got, let's say, a negative Yelp review or a negative review online, the best thing you can do is say, hey, we're so sorry. This is not what we stand for. How can we help you? Let's let's go ahead and take this conversation online and let's let's have a chance to make this right. And by doing that, you do a couple of things. One, you show everybody else who's looking at that review that you actually care and that you're trying to remedy the situation. And then by taking it offline, you take them out of all of the back and forth. And then hopefully once you get a great resolution, you encourage that customer to go back and repost, or sometimes they'll just do that organically. And then I think when people see that you have something that's very positive that you've said, uh, that's been said about you after the negative, that that actually counts more than just having a bunch of positives because it's, it's very authentic and people can see that human aspect for your business. We're living at a time where people put so much energy into their social media accounts. And <laughs> you talk about how it's a lot more important to focus on making real connections rather than trying to get likes on Facebook or Instagram. Talk to us more about that. So I have a saying that you know, we're living in a time that people are pursuing ROE, return on ego, or yeah. ROI, return on investment. I mean, it's literally the return on ego culture. And I mean, you can spend all day racking up likes and retweets and comments on Instagram and whatnot. But if that's not putting dollars in your pocket, you know, until somebody figures out how you can actually buy something with a like, um, <laughs> <laughs> to pay rent or to be particularly successful. Yep. So I think it's really important when you have a strategy of using social media and you're using that as a, a tool as part of your strategy to, to remember and keep in mind, like, what am I trying to do here? <laughs> am I trying to create awareness? Am I trying to drive actual sales? And yeah, you know, there's a, there's a, a space for both of those, but at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, there's got to be a piece of it that comes back to you actually getting a customer and not just feeling good because people made you know you feel warm and fuzzy. It's much better for you to have a couple of dedicated customers than to have you know hundreds or thousands of likes from somebody who you know doesn't end up buying anything from you at the end of the day. So I I think that as people spend more and more time online, this whole return on ego thing is becoming a bigger, bigger issue. And the people who are going to be successful are those that really take a step back and, and keep in mind, this is my goal. My goal is to get a return on my time and you know, any actual capital investment and to drive results for my business. Carol, you say that business etiquette is more important than ever. Why is that? 
<laughs> well, have you ever been on the internet? <laughs> have you ever been on Twitter? Have you ever been in the, you know, the comment section? People have just completely lost their mind. I mean, I don't know if you ladies agree, but um, it seems like you know, more and more uh, people have, have just, you know, really gone off the deep end and, uh, you know, people... <laughs> just completely lost all sense of decorum. And I think that in terms of being professional and treating others with respect and having that, you know, appropriate etiquette and being focused on authentic relationships, it really differentiates you, um, you know, which is not a really high bar. <laughs> it used to be right. that we had a much higher bar. The bar is just getting lower every day. Yeah. So, no, you're right. Simple things is just being courteous and, and authentic and you know, saying thank you and you know, writing thank you notes and those kinds of things will actually turn out to be a competitive advantage for you in business and it will enhance your network and it will make somebody in your network who might want to refer a customer or client to you know that if they do so, they're not going to be embarrassed by doing so. And so that's another thing. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I just feel like across the board, the, the, the bars are all getting so much lower that things that used to just be common sense and common courtesy really have shifted and morphed into these true competitive advantages for, for people. So if you're just act like a normal human being, you are ahead of the game. <laughs> <laughs> Carol, I had written the question what are some of the challenges in becoming a female entrepreneur that men don't face? And when I Googled that with your name, I saw you actually had a very interesting response to that. And you don't like the term at all. So can you explain that? I hate it. I, I hate Yeah, the, the I agree whole, with you. The whole female entrepreneur, I don't like to qualify anything. I am not a female anything other than I just happened to be female and yeah, that was genetic lottery. But <laughs> I, I feel like when we start to qualify things, then it's like sitting at the kitty table. Yeah. It's like the standards are lower for these females. Right. right. It's like, oh, oh, you're a female entrepreneur. No, I'm actually just an entrepreneur, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and, and so, uh, you know, obviously there are unique challenges that everybody faces based on all different kinds of factors and obviously where you're from and sometimes your gender and the industry that you're in and whatever it is, they're all challenges and you just need to, you know, figure out what your personal challenges are and, and move past them. But the, the idea that, that, you know, there's something different or special about you, you know, being, having female genetics and being an entrepreneur, you know, other than the fact that many of us choose to wear really uncomfortable shoes, yep. <laughs> a choice. And I feel like something you get over as you get older. Um, yeah. Like I'm just an entrepreneur and I will, you know, I thank my parents so much for never putting the idea of female anything in front of me, because the things that I have done are things that were, it is like, I do get this a lot. It's like, Oh, there aren't a lot of women who have, you know, been investment bankers or been public company directors or written, you know, New York times, best selling business books or whatever it is. And I think part of the reason is because nobody said, Oh, well, you're a woman and, and there's a special category for, for your kind. Of people, <laughs> <Right>. for your <laughs> kind. <laughs> um, so I would just say, you know, the first thing I tell someone is when they say, Hey, I'm a 
female entrepreneur, what should I do? My first thing is say, stop calling yourself a female entrepreneur. Interesting. So, yeah. Tell, tell me your business problems. Tell me that the actual issues that you're facing. Um, and you know, if your shoes are uncomfortable, change your shoes, you know? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Carol, you say you can't have a business without having customers. And unfortunately where there are customers, there are also difficult customers. Yes. So what are some of the best ways to deal with difficult customers and what are some things to avoid in dealing with difficult customers? Well, it's always very important for you to figure out if a customer is, you know, worth your time. And, you know, they say the customer is always right. And so you have to do your best to service your customers. But there are always those handful of customers that take up more time and resources and dollars and maybe don't treat your staff particularly well or just take advantage of you as a business. And unless those happen to be highly influential people, in which case you just need to suck it up because the the damage that they can do from an influence standpoint is it just isn't worth it. But if they're just the everyday person and they're you know sucking up a lot of your time and energy and just not worth it, fire them just fire them as a customer and say, you know, we really appreciate uh, that, you know, that you've, you've been a customer of ours, but we've, we've had this litany of, of issues that you've brought to our attention. And we just don't think that we have the resources to meet your expectations. And so we suggest that you, you find another company that's going to be better serving you because at the end of the day, we just want you to be happy. And so, you know, you always do it with a positive spin. You don't have to leave a footprint on there behind. Um, but, <laughs> As you uh, kick them out the but door. Still, but still kick them out the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you create a brand that really resonates with people? So it kind of goes back to having a mission and solving a problem. Um, you know, you, you can't sort of just organically say, I'm going to create this, you know, pretty brand and, and it's, this is going to be great for people. You, you have to stand for something and then you have to get their buy-in. That If you're on a mission that they need to know that you are partners with them and that you see their problem and that you guys are hand in hand and, and working with the, with them. And the really cool thing about customers who like what you stand for and like your mission is that if you're solving a real problem for them, most of them want to be engaged with you. I mean, they, these are the people who will give you free feedback, you know, who will basically do your advertising for you via word of mouth. And so, you know, reaching out to the people who you are solving that problem for and letting them know that they're their partners and that you're here for them and asking them questions and involving them, that's really what creates that brand identity. And then, you know, sometimes you can control the way that goes and sometimes you can't control the way that it goes, but it at least gives you that foundational element um, to, to really connect with people and have it mean something to them. And then once it starts meaning something to a group of people, then, you know, you can broadcast that to a larger group of like-minded people. And that's as far as the customers are concerned, but as far as the employees are concerned, how can a small business create employee motivation? Well, I think it's really important to get buy-in from the employees as stakeholders as well, because the reality is, is that they are the top ambassadors 
uh, for your business. You know, they're the ones that are interfa- interfacing with the customers, and if they're not happy, it's going to show through in your products and services. It's going to show through in your customer service, and you know, you're just not going to have the ability to really create and and uh, execute on your mission. And th- I think this is where so many small businesses really fall down because, you know, it, it's such a struggle for small businesses to continue to move forward and to grow. And sometimes they forget that, you know, they have this incredible um, resource inside their companies and that those individuals are really important to them. So, I would say if you're a small business owner and an entrepreneur, definitely spend more time on your employees because those become really great ambassadors. And, you know, like we've been talking about, these are people who are also out on social media um, and, you know, their sort of positivity or negativity is going to end up out, um, you know, in the zeitgeist, whether you like it or not. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, you're the creator of the Future File Legacy Planning System. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's absolutely fascinating. I was on the website. Oh, thank you. So this is, um, you know, I've had all of these really cool experiences in my life that I'm really grateful for, but it, it's sort of like a lifetime original movie because I've had all of these tragedies that have gone sort of alongside them. So I've had four major losses Um, In my adult life, when I was a senior in college, I had a boyfriend who was killed in a car accident, and that sort of set a spiral in motion. So I'm, I'm grieving and going through this process, and then my mom was diagnosed with leukemia, and she passed away the day after her 51st birthday, just a couple years after the the first uh, passing. And then as we're grieving that, uh, my stepmother. Uh, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and she passed away at age 55. So when we got to number three, my dad looked at my sister and I and said, you know, if something were to happen to me, I'm not sure you guys would know what to do. And since you're the only two that are left, I should probably give you some information. So he was very diligent about recording his wishes and gathering his information, including important documents and policies and spare keys to safety deposit boxes and and like, and really giving us all this information. And funny enough, at the time, you know, even though we had been through these other losses, we just kind of figured, okay, well, we had our losses and, you know, dad's going to be around forever. So we sort of rolled our eyes and went, okay, this weird death file thing. Okay, we'll just put it over here. But five years ago, lo and behold, my dad was in a freak accident, and my sister called me and said, you know, that weird file that dad had, I need you to grab it and bring it to the hospital as, you know, he's been in an accident. And so I grabbed the file, and we um, had a, an end-of-life decision to make, and so I went through and I found my power of attorney, so I was the healthcare power of attorney for him. We found his wishes that wanted, he wanted us to do in that particular situation, and we had some other things. We, he, he was in a car at the time, so we had to spare key to the car, to move the car, and ultimately he didn't make it, and then we had to use this file to lay his body to rest and to do the ceremonies and services, and ultimately to wrap up his personal affairs. And what it really did for us is that, first of all, it saved us 
a lifetime of burden because we didn't want to carry around that burden of should we have waited another day? Should we have gotten another opinion? Should we have you know made a different decision? So we knew that we we carried out his wishes, and I don't have to walk around with that every day, and neither does my sister. So that that in and of itself is priceless. Um, we also saved more than ten thousand tangible dollars on the end of life costs, which are completely out of control. And so going through the budgeting and pre-planning that my dad did, he actually saved us more than 10,000 tangible dollars. And then for the money that we did spend, um, he had uh, end of life insurance in place. And then for me being you know, very, very busy, the, the biggest thing was the hundreds of hours. So we literally saved hundreds of hours tracking down all of this information and making sure that we had not just the wishes, but the information, the documents, the policies, the spare keys, all these kinds of things. So as you can imagine, as we sort of talked about earlier, a lot of entrepreneurial ideas are born out of our own experience. So as we told friends and family members about this thing that our father had done for us, the feedback we kept getting is, I need to do that. It was either I've got a, an aging parent or grandparent and, and I want to do it for them, or I have a spouse and they don't know what's going on financially in the household, so I want to do it for them, or I've got kids and we need to make sure they're prepared. So we went and looked in the marketplace and didn't find that anyone had really done a great job in creating a roadmap, not just for an individual to organize that information, but a secondary roadmap for the loved ones to follow, um, not just for passings, but also for issues that arise uh, with aging parents, things like mental incapacitation or dementia or accidents and the like. And that's what had us create FutureFile. And, uh, you know, it's a, a mission-based business. It's a gift that our father gave to us that you know, saved us burden, saved us time, saved us money. And so we're on a mission to help other families prepare um, in terms of getting this roadmap together. And you can find out more information on that at what website? At futurefile.com. And, you know, Carol, our show is called Nobody Told Me, and we always <laughs> ask our guests what is your nobody-told-me lesson? What is it that you have learned that nobody could have told you about and you kind of wish maybe they, they had? Well, I'm going to actually flip it, if you don't mind, because I do feel like a lot of times when it's nobody-told-me, nobody told me the bad things that happen, and I had to, you know, you had to find your way out of that. But I think what nobody told me is that I couldn't do anything. I didn't have anybody who put any limitations on me. So nobody said, as we talked about before, you're a woman, so you can't do this. Or, no, you, you, you can't go to Wharton because you're, you're the first person in your family to go to college. Or, you know, you have no money, so you can't pay for it, so you shouldn't do it. Right. You know, my, my whole entire career is nobody told me I couldn't do things, and I think that's what's allowed me to just go – balls out, for lack of a better term, and just pursue things that I think a lot of other people get in their own way and just have the fear and say, well, maybe I'm not good enough. So fortunately, nobody told me anything. <laughs> That's right. my benefit. Nobody told you you couldn't, so you just exactly. did it anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us. We have been talking with business advisor and best-selling author Carol Roth. Carol's best-selling book is called The Entrepreneur Equation, and you can buy it anywhere books are sold. 
I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. And you've been listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 